Turn to chapter 19, Revelation. The two major passages, the clearest passages describing the second coming are Revelation 19 and the passage in Matthew 24. So Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, John in the long extended book devoted to eschatology. And this passage, we won't read it all, but uh, the reason this is our blessed hope, heaven understands it because this is the consummation of all things for, for you and I. And in heaven, what precedes the second coming, verses 1 through 10, is this great worship. And this is a start, read part of it. We won't read all 10 verses. Read a couple of verses there. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. Now, the after these things, these are after all of the cataclysms, all of the destruction, all of the judgments of the great tribulation. The scene shifts to a heavenly scene. And what do we have in those two verses? After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude saying, Salvation and the power of God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth. He has avenged all of his servants, Shepherd. Avenging the blood of servants, judging the great harlot. God is resolving the issue of sin. Judgment is a good thing. Judgment, God is separating out, and he has brought his judgments. This is praised in heaven. And notice the voice of a great multitude in heaven. Hallelujah. Halal. Let's look at that word. A couple things preceding. The second coming is the theme of the whole book. Everything before is just introduction. You know who said that? Mm? No. (laughs) I wish I had said it. Walbred. Everything before is just introduction. So everything preceding chapter 19 is introductory to the second coming. Setting the stage. Mm. The Hebrew word, there it is. All of you can pronounce it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's not the hard one. That's, that's just halal. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's the chait. You can break it down. Halal means to praise. And yach is the beginning of Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. And what's praised is his salvation, glory, and power in this passage here. We also have a praise of his judgment and his vengeance also in that same passage. And a good application, you can use this passage for teaching on the concept of worship and ultimate worship, and you can praise, you can find all of these in this passage as you go through it. His work, the emphasis here is judgment, resolving the issue of evil, It even refers to salvation there because he's completing salvation. So we can praise him for all of that work. We can praise him for just who he is. He's almighty. He's God. He's omnipotent. We can praise his attributes. Several of his attributes are spelled out in here. His holiness, his wrath, his purposes. His purposes are to resolve the issue of evil and to bring history to consummation, to bring his people into fellowship, close fellowship, to remove them from sin. All of the purposes are all in this passage. His will, he's finally executing his will in final ways, and even a future plan from our perspective. The entire eschatological plan, we can praise him. That's glorifying worship. And if you read further in, his power, 
and his sovereignty are praised. And if you want to include more, you can just, if you want to personalize it, you can praise him for the blessings that he brings to you personally as well. That is glorifying worship. Now, I've got this in here. We've already looked at the marriage supper. That's in the latter part of 19. That's 7 through 10. So we won't go through there, but the reign of the bride, these are just the different views of who the bride is. They're not Old Testament saints. They're not Israel and the church. They're not dedicated saints, but the church. And by the way, this is the only passage after chapter 3 that refers to the church at this time frame, but it's a heavenly scene. It's not on earth. That's why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Now let's look at the passage referring to his return. Vivian, verse 11. Of 19. 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So his purpose, at least laid out in this passage, the purpose of his coming, heaven is open, this is a white horse. This is different from the white horse in chapter 6. This is the one called Faithful and True. He's the embodiment of truth, absolute truth. And he's faithful. He has carried out all that God has called him to do. And his purpose is to judge and to wage war. One of the main functions of the second coming. Verse 11. Mark 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, no one does deserve. Okay, stop there. Going back to the preceding verse... Purpose of judgment, God separating evil from good, it's a good thing. God bringing history to consummation, that's his purpose. So we have a consummating passage here as well. And then verse 12, read 13 as well. This is a his portrait, 19, 12, and 13. He is clothed on his, no, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Okay, it's a little glimpse of his portrait or who he is. Eyes as a flame of fire. Now, all of this goes all the way back to chapter 1, John's initial vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ. And in that context, they're pictured as similes. Here, he drops the simile, making them metaphors. Same person, somewhat same description. And in that context in chapter 1, and I think carried over here, and... We could have commented because it referred to, remember we talked about the eyes of the Antichrist. Intelligence, in this case, even beyond intelligence. Omniscience, a picture of omniscience here. The all-penetrating, the all-knowing God, eyes like a flame of fire that cuts through everything. Nothing can prevent him from seeing through, like a flame of fire. Rulership, kingship, on his head, many diadems. Name written upon him who no one knows except himself. That's the incomprehensibility of God. There are aspects that we'll never know about him. He's incomprehensible. Clothed with a robe dipped in blood, that's his redemption, reminding us of his sacrifice. Name called the Word of God. He's the embodiment of truth, the Word of God. He's not only truthful, he's not only faithful and true, he is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Word became flesh, Jesus Christ. This is John. So that's a portrait. Omniscience, sovereignty, incomprehensibility, holiness, truthfulness, 
some of the attributes highlighted in that description. And we have his personnel. I'm using P's if you haven't figured it out yet. Verse 14. Jim? In the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him white horse. And the personnel there are what? The armies which are in heaven, who might they be? Some passages indicate angelic creatures, angels. I think here more specifically, believers. And I think believers from Old Testament, if they're not resurrected at the rapture, then somewhere in here. And I think Old Testament believers, I think the church comes with him based on those passages that refer to us coming with him. So I think we're, it refers to it as armies because it could even include, you know, all these different categories, different groups of people, might even include tribulation things, the ones that are martyred. The ones that are alive will enter into the kingdom in mortal bodies. But those that have died, this probably, it doesn't refer to it, but it probably is the place where they're resurrected, returned with him as well. That's his personnel. How does this passage fit for Some people see different aspects of that coming. The Mount of Olives passage, those passages that refer to Armageddon, whether we can separate them, I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's enough data to be conclusive. There might be different aspects of his coming. And it seems like if the battle is in the Valley of Jezreel, does he do the battle? Does he come to the Mount of Olives? You know, which one does he do first or is it simultaneous? You know, how does it all happen? I don't know. But that's a, that's a good question. And then here, he's coming visibly and we're coming with him. And I'm anticipating to set foot on the Mount of Olives with him. So I'm hoping to be there in about four weeks as well and stand on the Mount of Olives too. So we have his purpose, verse 11, his portrait, 12 to 13, and his personnel in verse 14. And if you want another P, kind of stretching it a little bit, we call it his performance. What's he going to do when he arrives, 15 and 16? Is that you, Eric? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down and he will rule it a rod of he treads the wine of fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings. Okay, that's the description of his re- return, the most detailed. And I think this is how I break it down. So what is he going to do? First of all, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's the image of judgment. That's the executioner's sword, also the military sword. And it says, with it, he may smite the nations. And you put that also with Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. He's going to slay, who else? Antichrist. It's on this occasion. And what else? He's going to judge. What are the two main things there? Judgment and rulership. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And back to your question, Vivian, when you ask if there's going to be a degeneration, I think Jesus is going to maintain righteousness in the kingdom. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And the any unbelievers, we'll talk about this when we talk about the millennial kingdom, but any unbelievers during the millennial kingdom, I'll show you where they come about. And I think there will be unbelievers during the millennial kingdom. That's the only way you can explain the rebellion at the end. They will function in a great culture surrounded by believers amongst resurrected believers but because of the old nature 
Jesus will have to suppress that. And he will rule in righteousness. And I think he will maintain righteousness through the thousand years. And then he permits at the end a rebellion led by Satan himself. We'll come back to that when we talk about the millennial king. So the ruling with a rod of iron, there's going to be a need for that. Uh, not a need amongst resurrected saints because we won't have a sin nature. But there will be mortals that will have a sin nature that will require rulership. Does that make sense? Okay. So he's going to rule. That's part of the function of the millennial kingdom. We will rule with him. There's passages that indicate that as well. And I think it's based on our faithfulness, the extent of that rulership. By the way, I'm planning on ruling Texas, so I've already got my dibs in. Sorry. <laughs> Jim's got New Mexico, I think. You're all getting taken up. I haven't even got the word. Yeah, you better, you better get on it. Okay, so he's going to rule with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, the Omnipotent One. So there's more judgment there, wrath pouring it out. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings. So there's going to be other kings. There's going to be other kings. David's going to reign, for one, specifically. The 12 apostles, without Judas, there's going to be a replacement. Acts chapter 1. Matthew, what is it? 1928 says what? Does anybody remember? The 12 apostles are going to what? Rule the 12 tribes. They will have a kingly role. So they will be kings. There will be one king over them. The king of kings. And perhaps other believers, as they're faithful, I'll be king of Texas, maybe. And, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> what do you want, Dave? Probably. Ah. <laughs> Good choice. You know what I'm talking about. That's probably David. Uh, oh, 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 Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. <laughs> ah, I see. That's, what we, that's what we call it. There's more than one promised land. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Riddle that's called, where I'm from. So Glenn Riddle called Texas the promised land. Okay. <laughs> Sheila's going to be over Michigan, right? Vivian, Lithuania, you choose it. <laughs> have to learn the language. Yeah. Oh, that'd be no problem. Be in a resurrected yeah. body. No problem with language. Okay, let's wrap this thing up here. Matthew 24. Then, this is the second major description of the second coming. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. There's a debate as to what the sign is different viewpoints, display of the cross in the sky. I think this is Luther's view, if I remember right. A banner of the Son of Man. I don't know where they get that one. Some see the New Jerusalem suspended. That's Revelation 21. The New Jerusalem is described there, suspended up in the sky. Shekinah glory from Old Testament. God displayed his glory in a cloud in the temple. Some see that as returning in the second coming, a display of the Shekinah glory. That's the sign. These are all second coming related. These are all views that people take on the sign of the coming. That's why I have sign titled. Probably the best one is the coming of Christ himself. That seems to fit all the details better, I think. And if you study Matthew chapter 24, we won't read the passage for the sake of time, but you can find the same elements that we described earlier. It's sudden, lightning flashing from the east, going into the west, spectacular, in fact, indescribable. 
visible. Every eye shall see. These are all out of this Matthew 24 passage. Bodily. It's not as clear, but if you see it, you're going to be able to see a body there. And we know from Zechariah, it'll be on the Mount of Olives, up in the upper right-hand part of the slide there, Mount of Olives. And there's another shot of the Mount of Olives. And in fact, this, these two photographs are taken very close to the hotel that we're going to stay in when we go to Israel. And we could say it's going to be publicly, every eye will see, it's with clouds. Those are mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. Glorious, coming in glory with angels, and that's it. And um, Matthew, I mean, the Revelation passage, is it, I mean, is it you that are literally horses? Probably. What was, the question? What? what was the question? Oh, just about whether it's literally, like the armies come literally. I don't, there's nothing in there that I see that... That they'd be flying? I mean, flying Resurrected horses. <laughs> I mean, it sounds great. Sounds great, but how do you do it on the ground? <laughs> Sounds good on paper. No, I'm just, I just want to, it's just a random question. Does that mean animals go to heaven? There's going to be horses coming. Horses coming, so. There's animals in the millennial kingdom. There's lions, there's lamb. So. It's always been a question with friends. So it goes with friends down there? There's no references, but okay. if there's others, why not? All right, let's talk about Millennial Kingdom today. We won't complete everything. It's the advantage of having next week, right? (laughs) We run out of weeks. And as I've been saying all along, when we speak of eschatology, you need to think Jewish, because I believe eschatology is predominantly Jewish been mentioning that at the beginning of almost each of the topics we've been dealing with, so including the one that dealt with Israel. But scriptures deal with primarily the nation of Israel, and every major event in the history of Israel was predicted ahead of time. And there are some events that are remaining to be completed or fulfilled, And in Jewish eschatology, we can see just the broad strokes here. And if you remember, all of this was laid out even before Israel was a nation. At Sinai, actually, in Leviticus, probably where Leviticus is set, God already in chapter 26 laid out the rest of their history. And then he reiterates it in Deuteronomy, particularly 28 and 30, first major area is that Israel will fail. It's not an optimistic prediction, but it's reality, and it's basically as a result of man's sinfulness. And God also will discipline. Now, they've experienced that throughout their history at different points. Failure and discipline over and over, and there's going to be, obviously, an ultimate and final failure. Secondly, there's going to be a very distinct period called tribulation. And there's lots of passages that deal with that, including the Leviticus 26 and the Deuteronomy 28 passage. And then it becomes more and more specific as we get into specific prophets. And even more specific by the time you get to the New Testament, that we can conclude that it is... Not only specific in terms of a lot of the detail, but it's specific in the precise time frame. Daniel's the one that mainly introduces the time frame. 
So tribulation pertains to Israel, and that's one of the reasons why we are pre-tribulational, is because it has a particular purpose, particular design, and it does not include the church. In fact, we said that eschatology relating to the church, the church fits into Jewish eschatology. So, also, not only is there tribulation, but the whole purpose of the tribulation is for Israel's restoration. And again, there are other periods of time when there are restorations. In other words, restoration before coming of Messiah in preparation for Messiah. And then there's a preparation during the tribulation period in preparation for the coming of Messiah, which is the same, same Messiah, same preparation, but in this case, second coming. And obviously a major theme of Jewish eschatology is Messiah. And the New Testament makes clear that Messiah will come two times. Messiah came in the first century, and Messiah will return, and it'll be the Jewish Messiah that returns. And when he returns, he returns as judge and as king in order to establish a kingdom. And the kingdom is Jewish. Gentiles have a part in it, the church has a part in it, but the kingdom is predominantly Jewish. Most of the passages relating to the kingdom are in the Old Testament and speaking to Jewish people concerning their future relationship with Messiah in the kingdom. And you might notice that, in fact, we'll point out when we get to Revelation chapter 20, John gives us very, very little about the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. There's very little in there. The main emphasis of Revelation 20 is the time frame. It's not till you get to Revelation 20 that we realize that the kingdom is millennial. So we call it a millennial kingdom. But it's a Jewish kingdom. And we've talked a lot about all of that that precedes. So we want to focus on the kingdom today and look at kingdom that is millennial. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction beyond the little introduction I already gave. That was an introduction to the introduction. As we often do, right? So, first of all, why is this important? Well, first of all, it's a major teaching of Scripture. There's lots of passages, many, many passages pertaining to the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, a couple of quotes. Walbert says, The doctrine of the Millennial Kingdom of God is one of the major revelations of Scripture. And what he's saying is there's lots of Scriptures major revelations of Scripture pertaining to God's program. So it's very, very important just from the proportion of Scriptures that we have for it. J.D. Pentecost says, A larger body of prophetic Scriptures devoted to the subject of the millennium, developing its character and conditions than any other one subject. Wow. it's an amazing statement. Now, I might disagree because I think the subject of God himself is more prominent, but excluding that one, I would think that Pentecost is pretty pretty accurate in that. So a larger body prof- prophetic scripture is devoted to the subject of the millennium. And the subject of the doctrine of God is in large measures prophetic as well. But maybe that's his qualifier there, prophetic scriptures. There's different views, obviously, many of them distorted and non-biblical. In the introduction that I gave you, we talked a lot about some political versions of a millennial 
kingdom, maybe not so much necessarily millennial, but there tend to be kind of these ideas of an ideal government, a utopia, if you will. And we mentioned in the introduction that there's a yearning for a better culture, a better environment, a better government, better system. And there's different theories as to how to bring about those ideas. For example, communism it is actually a eschatological hope and desire that men be equal. Communism. Problem with it, it makes men equal at the lowest common denominator, and it discourages aspiration and encouragement for the very thing that it's attempting to accomplish, the betterment of mankind. So in a sense, that's an eschatological ideology, is communism itself and all of its manifestations. We mentioned even more specifically, Hitler had a third Reich, and he envisioned a thousand-year robbing from the biblical idea of a third Reich, of an ideal government that he would initiate. And we also mentioned that Islam has a future hope as well when it dominates the world, and basically Islam is the religion of the world, and when that happens, then things are much better than they are right now. So these are kind of political versions of a millennial hope or a millennial desire, and we've seen historically people attempting to implement those ideas. Hitler, in Musser's book, Nazi Oak, says, Hitler believed that primitive Christianity was the first Jewish communistic cell. And obviously Hitler was Marxist, even though he spoke against the communism of that day. Musser goes on, the Nazis therefore propounded their own millennium. The thousand-year Reich was propagated as a counterculture millennialarianism. Counterculture millennialarianism directly opposed to the very originators of the millennium slash apocalyptic worldview of the Jews and Christians. So it's kind of counter to the biblical millennium. So those are some of the political versions that have manifested themselves in time in history. And when we were talking about the tribulation, we're going to see that there's another one that pops up during the middle of that tribulation. And it'll have a Messiah. It'll have a future hope. And it doesn't mention anything about a time frame, but we'll have some of the same elements that uh, some of these political versions display. The utopia of man, the hope, the desire that is within man, because we know and we experience sin and its destruction. We know that there has to be something better. There has to be a time frame, a government that is better than what we experience today. So we hope for a utopia. And some actually use that very word, and it can take other forms other than political as well. Yeah, I don't know if you've read that book on America. America. I haven't read it. It talks about a utopian America. Yeah. It's an eschatological hope and eschatological view, obviously based on probably man, humanism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the the history were, you know, really kind of... Right. 
So this idea of a millennium is not just what they, what the secular world would call pie in the sky. It's not just a fantasy, a wishful thinking idea, but it is something that is somewhat, I think, ingrained in us as a result of the image of God. We know that there's a problem of evil and sin. We just don't know how to resolve it. And as Mark was pointing out. The Ameritopia is kind of a book describes the systemization the of syst- that idea. The systemization of a utopian idea. Good. So that inward hope, man attempts to attain it, but never can because he doesn't have a solution to the problem of evil that the Bible gives. Now, many in even our conservative camp kind of equate heaven and the millennial kingdom. We're going to make a distinction between the two. The church in general views heaven and the kingdom as identical. And the thinking is that all of the passages pertaining to a kingdom are actually passages that refer to a heavenly state or the eternal state, but I make a distinction in that. I see the millennial kingdom as part of world history. We'll talk about that. So I think it's not heaven. There's a distinction, and I think the scriptures make that distinction. Amillennialists spiritualize the millennium. Amillennial means the negation of a millennium or the negation of a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth, so it's spiritual. Some amillennialists see it in heaven, some see it on earth. You can't see it on earth because it's spiritual, or you can't see it because it's in heaven, one or the other. So that's one view. And amillennialists actually equate the church with the kingdom. Church is the kingdom. And even postmillennialists tend in that direction as well. It's only the pre-millennial view that takes these passages literally, Grammatically, historically, and we see a literal understanding of a literal thousand-year, literal earthly kingdom, literal related to the nation of Israel, literal in terms of its participants, real people in mortal bodies even, including animals, including a physical environment And I think if you take the passages that pertain to it, literally, that's the conclusion you're forced to take. Otherwise, you have to spiritualize all those passages. Yes, there will be spiritual beings in that kingdom, but they will literally be spiritual beings. (laughs) So that's the approach that we will take. Did you get that? (laughs) They will be literal, resurrected bodies. That's what I was hinting at there. You know, uh, one of the things, Ray, I did some reading this last week on the preterist. Oh, you did. I was surprised that uh, actually they they take a, uh, a literal hermeneutic on a lot of what they believe, and including the, a literal future thousand-year millennium. The full preterists do? That's from what I've read. Okay. Is that not your understanding? I thought the full preterists were a little bit more spiritual in terms of the future kingdom. The moderates tend to be a little bit more literal, the moderate preterists. Maybe it's the moderates. Yeah, there's a sharp distinction between the two. Okay, let's take a look, first of all, at this term, kingdom. 
It occurs very frequently in Scripture, so it's used in a variety of ways. The word basilia is translated kingdom, relating to the word for king as well. In fact, there's a whole word group related to that one term there. And the word millennium is just a descriptive word. It's not a biblical word. And it's from the Latin milas plus annus, which is a thousand year. And that comes out of the, the book of Revelation. Some people use another descriptive word, kiliism. Kiliism from the Greek word kilioi. Kilioi, thou equal a thousand. Now that's a Greek word. That's the word that is used in the book of Revelation. So we might be referred to as kiliists in that we believe in a thousand, a literal thousand year reign. Now that's not as common as the term millennium. So when you look up the terms, you'll find the usage of the term in a variety of contexts, referring to a variety of different things. For example, the same word in the Hebrew, I should have given you a Hebrew word there, I don't remember it off the top of my head here, but in the Old Testament, a very common word for kingdom is used, and sometimes it refers to Gentile kingdoms. One example is the Daniel 2 passage that we've already looked at a few times. The Daniel 2 passage speaks of these kingdoms that are arise, beginning with Babylon, and then we have a series of four of them that will arise one after the other, and one of them returns at the end. And you could include Daniel 7 as well, because the word kingdom is used there in reference to Gentile kingdoms. So the word itself doesn't always automatically refer to this millennial kingdom. You need the context to make that determination. There's even a somewhat spiritual form of a, of a kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, now I don't think the word kingdom occurs there, but it refers to a domain of darkness, referring to a kingdom or a dominion of darkness. So there is a spiritual evil kingdom that has an influence in a literal earthly way upon humanity and the world, kingdom of darkness. There's also the kingdom that is specific to Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. A lot of prophetic passages, not only predicting it, but then just the historical accounts of the kingdom with a literal king. We'll talk a little bit about it because I think it is the prototype of the eventual Jewish millennial kingdom. I see the millennial kingdom as having all of the same characteristics, major characteristics, as that kingdom of Israel and Judah. I'll give you those. In fact, we've looked at it already, but I'll give it to you again. We looked at them in the introduction when I gave you some uh, foundations to eschatology. I think it's also used in a spiritual, perhaps a universal sense that transcends even time. Romans 14, 17. In fact, there's others as well. We ought to look that one up. Sheila, why don't you, uh, why don't you look that one up? And Jim, look up. Now, some of these are not as clear. Uh, 1 Corinthians 
420. I don't have it on the slide there. And Hinata, why don't you look up Colossians 411, just so we kind of distinguish the usage in these contexts. They're not referring to Israel and Judah. They're not referring to a Gentile kingdom or a physical material kingdom. And by the way, passages like these would be the basis for this idea of a spiritual kingdom. So we as literalists are not excluding such a kingdom, but we're saying that a lot of passages refer to a very specific literal earthly kingdom. You got Romans 14 and 17. Okay, the first part of that verse seems to distinguish it. It's not an earthly, physical, material kingdom. There's a kingdom of God that transcends that. Do you see that? But it is a kingdom of righteousness, spiritual. 1 Corinthians 4.20, Jim? For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. In power. So there's a, the effects of a kingdom, and it seems to be a kingdom that transcends the earthly. And Paul is describing it in the context as if it exists right now. So there is a sense, and we'll talk about that some more in a moment. I'm just trying to distinguish how this word is used in different contexts. And even Colossians 4.11. And Jesus was called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the of God proved a comfort to me. Okay, he's referring to a present kingdom of God. That's not millennial. That's not Israel. It's not a Gentile kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that seems to exist in the context that Paul is speaking. You see that? See that distinction? I don't think he's projecting ahead. He's talking about present circumstances. So there is a spiritual universal kingdom. I'll come back to that. There also seems to be a mystery form of the kingdom. And the word basilea is used in Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus lays that out in parable form. Those are the parables of the kingdom. Remember? Parables of the kingdom. And Jesus describes them as a mystery in that same context. So there's a sense in which there is a kingdom, and what is being described by those parables relate to this inter-advent period of time between the first and second coming. It's not equal to the church, but it seems to parallel the same time frame. And the church may be a part of this broader spiritual kingdom. Make sense? So a mystery form. And then there are passages that refer to that specific millennial kingdom, both Old Testament and New Testament. More of them in the Old Testament than the New Testament. And I use the Revelation 20 passage because John uses the term thousand year six times in that context. So that's... That's the different ways that you'll find the usage of the term. And not, so you need, to, you need to look at the context and determine how it's being used. And hopefully those that I gave you as examples of the spiritual universal, the context kind of gives us that idea. Anana, sorry. No, no, no. I was just trying to figure out. You said that OT or more in the New Testament? Old of- there are more in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. There are literally hundreds in the Old Testament. So that's how the term is used. And from the usage, 
we can observe that there are different forms of the kingdom. So this kind of comes out of the just looking at the word itself and how it's used. So there's a little overlap here. There does seem to be an eternal kingdom that is not bound by time. In fact, it would exist outside of time that transcends time. And some of those passages that we saw, that that we read, probably refer to this eternal kingdom that is not earthly, but is, is in fact a spiritual kingdom that is outside of the material realm. So there's an eternal kingdom. We'll come back to that. I'm just going to lay these out, and then we'll come back and look at some of them more specifically. So there is an eternal kingdom. In other words, God always reigns. His kingdom always reigns and is sovereign over all. doesn't matter when. In the garden, he was king and reigned. After the fall, he remains king. He never loses his kingship. And this kingdom never goes away. His dominion, his rulership. Throughout all the Old Testament, this kingdom reigns. Because Jesus reigns. New Testament, there's an eternal kingdom over the church, you could say. Actually, over all things. This eternal kingdom rules over the millennial, specific earthly kingdom. God always rules. Make sense? Theologians also conclude that That eternal kingdom rules on earth, and they call that a theocratic kingdom, where God exercises influence upon mankind on earth, and he does this through a variety of means. I'll give you those. We'll come back to this as well. Theologians call that a theocratic kingdom. Thirdly, there's the kingdom of Israel, which I mentioned there's a lot of verses that deal with it specifically. Earthly, material, over just like any nation, Israel was considered a is considered a kingdom. Joe. Theocratic. Theocratic. Um, when before the judges period, the nation would that have been? Well, throughout time, God I think has ruled through human agency, and that's what the theocratic kingdom. So it doesn't matter whether they were judges or kings. Doesn't matter whether they were kings. Uh, in fact. You would even consider patriarchs as exercising rulership. You would even consider Adam. I'll, I'll give you some examples. So would that be the Gentiles? Hmm? Gentile kingdom? In some way, I, you could include them as well. Because, for example, Nebuchadnezzar, God used him as an instrument to accomplish certain things. It's theocratic rule. Oh, I, was just, I was just going to say, that, so it seems that the theocratic kind of the earthly representation of the eternal kingdom he reigns over all, but then he's manifesting. He manifests in, his rule. In time and space. Yes, in time and space through individuals. Yep. When was the first earthly kingdom? First Adam? <laughs> Under the theocratic idea? But actually, before there was a, a government. That had to be after Noah, before yeah. probably before Babel, but Babel would be the manifestation, clear manifestation of it. Yeah, yeah. And we mentioned the mystery form, which is unique in terms of all these others as well. Now, all of these are stemming from that eternal spiritual kingdom, just different manifestations of it, different forms. The kingdom of Israel is a specific God ruling his people through kings. 
specifically. The mystery form, that's that Matthew 13 passage again. And all of these are different from the millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom. So these are the different forms that we can identify, not only from the usage of the word, but from specific context referring to a, the rulership of God. So all the passages that speak of God as king would fall under some of these categories as well. Now, in terms of the millennial kingdom, we'll come back to this slide. It's a little busy, but the main thing I want you to notice, the book of Revelation, talked a lot about most of this on the slide already. It's just a summary of the book of Revelation in terms of the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, time frame, etc., major breakdowns of the book. But we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture and a post-tribulation second coming and a pre-millennial second coming, pre-millennial. Christ returns. That's the sequence in the book of Revelation, the broad sequence. So chapter 20 describes this kingdom. And it's that chapter and only that chapter that spells it out as millennial. And then I see chapters 21 and 22 as mainly outside of time, describing eternity or the eternal state. Different, distinct from the kingdom. And I see the same chronology, if you will, or the same general layout and dealing with essentially the same topics in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus himself gives us an outline of prophetic events, prophetic from the first century, prophetic from our time frame, and we've gone over a little of that as well. We'll come back to that because I'm going to give you a more detailed summary of both Book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and 25. All I'm pointing out is here kind of the chronology. There seems to be a seven-year period, and Jesus specifically says, after the tribulation of those days, he describes the second coming. And then Matthew chapter 25 Verses 1 through 45, I think, are in parable form a description of that same time frame that John describes as millennial. Use the word basilea there. The kingdom of heaven will be like, and he gives three parables. Gives us a few little things about the kingdom. And then again, we have one description, at least in verse 46, 2546, of the eternal state or some aspect of it. So the chronologies of both the major book, eschatological book, book of Revelation, and the major eschatological passage that Jesus lays out have the same basic time frame. And we've said this is the Jewish chronology. The church does not have an eschatological calendar, but Israel does. Very specific. Can you say that again? The church does not have an eschatological calendar, but Israel definitely has a very specific one. I'm amazed I can recall myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to put you in a position, yeah? Yeah, I do it often. So, uh, we're going to describe this period after a seven-year tribulation initiated by a second coming of Messiah, and very specifically, 1,000 years. And we would even want to say precisely 1,000 years. So, that's the introduction to our 
millennial kingdom. Let's talk about a basis for it. What is this time frame based on? And it starts with, I'm going to ask you, what does it start with? Well, I mean, what is the base, what, what is the beginning of the starting point of the basis? Oh, no, not the time frame. The, you're reading your outline sheet, right? <laughs> Very good. You're smart. Covenants. It's based on the covenants. That's the primary basis. That's the starting point in terms of a basis. Covenants. That's why we spend so much time dealing with all of the covenants, because they're fundamental to all eschatology. What God has done, he has set out legally what he is going to accomplish over time. That's why I mentioned the Abrahamic covenant spells out the parameters for all the rest of world history. And if you study the Abrahamic Covenant, and if you study history, you realize that the Abrahamic Covenant has not been totally fulfilled. There are still aspects, even today, that have not totally been fulfilled, and from the prophetic scriptures, will not be fulfilled until the Millennial Kingdom. So there has to be a time frame where these blessings are poured out. And the millennial kingdom is when the ultimate blessings will be poured out. But not just spiritual blessings. This will be the time frame when Israel occupies the full extent of the land of the Abrahamic covenant. They've never occupied that land. And today, they're put in a position to have to give up land rather than occupy the full extent of the land. But even under Solomon... They did not occupy the full extent of the land. And it doesn't appear that they will until Messiah basically destroys their enemies and then they will occupy the full extent. And then these blessings of the Abrahamic covenant will be poured out. So the Abrahamic covenant is yet to be fulfilled and it will not be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. So it requires that there be a period of time when it is fulfilled, and I think the Bible makes it clear that that's the time frame. And I just mentioned the Palestinian covenant relating to the land. That's when Israel will occupy the full extent of the land, is during the Millennial Kingdom. And more than likely, not before that Millennial Kingdom. And what's the next covenant? Davidic. The Davidic covenant, that's when Israel will rule. They will be the empire of the world. Under David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was at its high point. But shortly after Solomon, in fact, the kingdom split. And then it was just a matter of time. And there was degeneration. And eventually, because of idolatry, the nation collapsed. God sent them into captivity. So the Davidic covenant has never been fulfilled. The Millennial Kingdom will see David again ruling the nation of Israel. That is future. That's during the Millennial Kingdom. Next, we have the New Covenant. Now, we benefit as the body of Christ from the New Covenant, but the New Covenant is not fulfilled because we are not parties to the Covenant. The Covenant is not with the Church. The Covenant is with Israel and Judah. And it says Israel and Judah because at that time the nation was divided. But in the future, there'll be a uniting of the kingdom and the kingdom will be totally fulfilled 
but that awaits the regeneration of Israel during the tribulation period, which will begin the fulfillment of the new covenant. But the new covenant will not be fully fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. That involves the full blessing that is described in the new covenant, which is an aspect of the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. So it awaits a future period of time. So the bottom line is none of these covenants have been totally fulfilled. All of them await ultimate fulfillment in that last period of time that we describe as the millennial kingdom. So that moves us to the the purpose. What is the major purpose of this period of time? This thousand years, what is the main purpose of the millennial kingdom? I have at least six major purposes. Number one, if not only the covenants have not been fulfilled and a lot of the promises of God have not been fulfilled, then number one, the first and major purpose of the millennial kingdom is to fulfill the purposes of God. So it'll bring not only these covenants to fulfillment, but will also include all of the promises. This will be the time that Christ subdues and takes dominion of the earth. A man, a sinless man, will fulfill the purpose of mankind as described in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We also know that Israel will be prominent and they will be blessed during that period of time. The promises relating to Israel's prominence and Israel's blessings, not only from the Abrahamic covenant, but other places as well. Deuteronomy chapter 28, that's when Israel will be obedient. And that's also when Israel will be a blessing to all the nations. So many, many promises that we could list a long list that have not been fulfilled yet that will be fulfilled during this period of time. Secondly, we saw in the Old Testament a prototype of the kingdom, but that was far from a righteous kingdom with a sinless king reigning over the nation of Israel. So the second major purpose is to demonstrate that there will be a righteous kingdom, a kingdom where God will establish righteousness. And that can only be done with a regenerated people and a sinless king. And we'll talk some more about that a little bit later. The third major purpose is to demonstrate that God is sovereign over all of history. He is the ultimate authority. He has ultimate control of all events, including all historical events. So everything that's been prophesied, God will, in fact, bring to fulfillment because he is a sovereign God. So it will demonstrate the final era of sovereignty of God's rulership. We will see a visible rulership of God himself. Another purpose, fourthly, is to expose the wickedness of Satan. Even after a thousand years of confinement, where he is confined and bound, when he comes out of that confinement, there's no change in his nature and his character. He's still a deceiver deceives the nations, and in fact produces the final rebellion. So it'll demonstrate the sinfulness 
and wickedness of Satan himself. No repentance after a thousand years. Similarly, we have a fifth purpose. It's to reveal man's depravity. After a thousand years, we will see that there is a final rebellion. And we'll talk some more about that and give more detail concerning that and how it arises. But the thing to note there is that even under ideal circumstances in a kingdom with Christ reigning and righteousness ruling and in security and in peace, beginning with all believers, there's still the sin nature. Satan is bound, so you can't blame Satan. You can't blame the environment. The only thing that's left is the flesh and the sin nature. So it'll demonstrate the depravity of the sin nature and essentially the depravity of mankind. So it'll reveal man's depravity. Finally, we have in a sixth purpose of the millennial kingdom, in light of this final rebellion of Satan, in light of the final rebellion of mankind, it'll justify eternal punishment. And it'll justify God condemning lost humanity at the great white throne judgment, the last event of the millennial kingdom. So we have six major purposes of the millennial kingdom to fulfill God's purposes, to demonstrate a righteous kingdom and what that is like, to demonstrate God's sovereignty over all things, particularly world history, to expose Satan's wickedness, to reveal man's depravity, and then finally to justify eternal punishment. Vivian, why don't you close for us? Heavenly Father, we just we thank you so much for your word and the, the promise of your second coming that is a blessed word so much to eternity, to uh, even the millennial kingdom where righteousness will reign and sin is so grateful, free from bodies, drag us down the desires of the praise you and love you. Amen. Let's take a break at this point and then we'll return and come back and talk about the kingdom in the Old Testament. 